my levels a little bit. Okay, thank you. Uh, well, hello and welcome to the Psychedelic Diaries. I am your host, Ray Christian, and boy, do we have a show for you today. We've got a great guest, a friend, and one of the true innovators in psychedelic medicine, Dr. Keith Heinzerling, coming up. But uh, before we get to that, we're going to touch on a quick hello to producer Kevin. By the way, what was that song? Who's that band? Jungle. I like that. Can you play another one of their songs on the way out? <laughs> okay, good. Uh, so before we get to our special guest, as usual, we'll start with a nugget and a noodle. So today's nugget is uh, a very exciting piece of news from the Department of Watching the Sausage Get Made, so to speak. The California Senate has passed a resolution to allow for psychedelic use. Now, there's many stages to be followed, and it's not done yet, but it's a very exciting development in this world and maybe headed in the direction that Oregon is also headed. So that's the one nugget and the one noodle, something I've been noodling on of late in this space, is psychedelics for creativity. So we all know, or most of us know, that psychedelic use for mental illness has shown tremendous opportunity, some really incredible results. But what about the flip side? What about not just those that are mentally ill, but those that are already healthy? What can psychedelic usage do for them? This interconnected brain, a more connected brain, a quieter default mode network, what could that do for cognitive performance, for creativity? And maybe most importantly, how might we prove that? So the nugget in the noodle, producer Kevin, can we loop in Dr. Heinzeling? Let's see here. Dr. Keith Heinzeling, hello and welcome. Hey, how are you? Thank you. So Dr. Heinzeling is a physician board certified in internal medicine and addiction medicine. He is the director of the treatment and research in psychedelics affectionately known as the TRIP program, clever name, at the Pacific Neuroscience Institute in Santa Monica. He is a graduate of the Psychedelic Therapist Training Program at the Center for Psychedelic Therapies and Research at CIIS in San Francisco. You know, Keith, obviously we're buddies and, and I, I gotta tell you, uh, I'm super impressed with your work, but one of the things that impresses me and one of my favorite things about you Maybe it's because you've worked in addiction medicine. Maybe it's because you were a musician in a band, but it's almost like you are impossible to fluster. Why is that? I managed to find places along the way, like addiction medicine and harm reduction and um, now psychedelics that have been really incredible communities with people who um, are really smart and, um, you know, where doctors are one part of the team, but there's a, a lot of other folks who have a lot more real world experience and life experience that, that are important parts of the team. And I think that's helped me try to stay a bit grounded. Yeah, and it shows. It's no matter the topic, you were just 
unfazed and it's uh, a really attractive trait, which probably bodes well for your work in psychedelics. So please tell us a little bit about what you're doing in the world of psychedelics. Well, I'm, I'm uh, the first thing I would say is that I've been interested in psychedelics. I mean, it's really hard not to be interested, particularly if you work on anything related to mental health or addiction or neurobiology. They're really fascinating topics um, and fascinating substances. But I'm pretty new to doing actual research with psychedelics. I spent a lot of years at UCLA doing addiction medicine, treating patients, helping them get off drugs and, and alcohol, and trying to do clinical trials to develop medications to help people with addictions. Um, but and we, a lot of folks were interested in the potential of psychedelic therapies, but um, there wasn't an opportunity to get the research funded. Most of our funding came from the federal government, and they were not interested in paying for research on how to use psilocybin or LSD or MDMA, they, they, see, they still do kind of see those drugs as, you know, illegal narcotics. Um, so um, I was just kind of waiting, hoping maybe that I'd have an opportunity. And luckily I met this amazing guy, Dr. Dan Kelly, who's my boss at the Pacific Neuroscience Institute, who also was very interested in psychedelic therapies and he got together some funding to bring me over from UCLA to Pacific Neuroscience Institute. And we started the TRIP program almost two years ago. Um, the goal of the program is to do research um, to develop psychedelic therapies. Um, and uh, it was a long startup process because we had to get a license from the DEA and the federal government to be able to do research with Schedule One drugs. Um, but it was worth the, the wait. Um, we also had to have the generous support of donors. Um, the, the Annenberg Foundation gave us a grant and several individual, multiple individual donors have been funding the research of the program. And we're about halfway through our first study, which is a clinical trial of psilocybin for alcohol use disorder that incorporates um, some really neat films from the filmmaker Louis Schwartzberg, who made the film Fantastic Fungi. Great um, movie. And incorporates it into the psychedelic therapy. So we've got our first study up and running, a couple others about to start up and just trying to build on some momentum. That's fantastic. Well, congrats on the success. What an exciting space to be in. And I'm curious, as you've now gotten past probably the, the honeymoon phase, as they say, and you've been sitting with patients as well, going into a new space like this is always going to be a novel experience for everybody. But what has specifically surprised you about psychedelics? Yeah, like you said, um, so I've, we've done, um, we're doing 20 patients in the alcohol study and we've completed 11 so far and I've, I've sat with all of them. I've been lucky to have two amazing um, co-therapists 
Karina Sergi and Micah Linton, who have been working with me. And there's so many things, but if I had to pick one thing, I would say that I was just completely impressed by how being present during the, and it's like a six or seven hour session. So we're with the patient, two of us are with the patient, the entire session for seven hours. Um, the, the impact that that has on me, it's a very, um, it's, it's a, you know, the, the staff will always notice afterwards, like when we come out of the session, you just feel a sense sometimes of real calm. Um, other times, honestly, it's a bit challenging because some very, uh, sometimes, you know, challenging and difficult things come up with the patients or, you know, I remember one patient and I knew that there was some past psychological and emotional issues, but just being face to face, you know, when the medicine opens up a, almost like a portal to their subconscious or their, their mind, or I'm not sure exactly where. Yeah. Um, and just seeing the depth of sadness that this person was carrying around and came out, you know, it was, very, it was pretty draining, um, but it's, it's enriching, whether it's even, even those cases, it just feels nourishing and enriching and it's had a dramatic impact on, on me. You know, I, I appreciate that share. And I think it's one of the more fascinating sides of this research that a lot of people don't see, especially those that haven't experienced psychedelics. And I'm curious, you talk about four or five, six hour experiences, and it's sometimes it's sad, sometimes it's rich, enriching. Give us a peek behind the curtain. What are you doing for four, five, six hours as you're sitting with someone? Yeah, the... Um... It's a, uh, sometimes I, you know, I'm a physician, so, and I talk to a lot of doctors, so sometimes I'm trying to explain it to them. Um, uh, but the way we're thinking about the psychedelic session is that it's a, it's a procedure, it's a medical procedure and a psychological procedure. So, you know, I kind of feel like um, if you take the surgery analogy, um, we're not the surgeons. We're not the ones like in there operating. If anything, perhaps the psilocybin or the LSD or whatever the medicine in might is might be the closest to the surgeon. Huh. We might it. be the anesthesiologist. You know, the anesthesiologist is um, sits there in the operating room at the head of the patient, monitors all the monitors, monitors the patients status um, and is there to support the surgery being done in a safe and you know optimal way and some surgeries are very routine and um, the anesthesiologist doesn't you don't see the anesthesiologist doing that much but they're there they have to be you know attuned and monitoring and ready because if there were something that were to happen it falls on them, you know, the surgeon's going to be like, Hey, what's going on with this blood pressure? You know, come on, get this, get this under control. I got to I got the patient open up over here. Right. So it's a little bit like that, 
you know, there's some some quiet aspects. Um, but but the goal is really to support the patient, the patient's experience as much as possible during the different phases of of the journey. And so what you're doing at the start is different than what you're doing at the peak, which is different in the come down. Um, I, you know, I, I love this, this anesthesiologist analogy that feels really apropos and it's, it's really insightful. And I think you had described it. You said at some points, because you're not on your phone, you're not on your computer and as a very busy guy, that can be tough. And you said, I think we were having lunch. You said it was almost like a really long meditation. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm very, um, uh, now there are a lot of people, a big debate is, does the, do you need guides, facilitators, sitters, therapists, whatever you want to call them, you know, from a, a um, from a, the perspective of scaling up therapy, it would be good to, you know, so two people, two clinicians have to sit with a patient for all day. That's quite expensive. Um, is it worth it? That's going to be the question. And I'm completely open and excited to see people try out all kinds of different experiences. You know, obviously, the other thing is that doctors, you know, we sometimes have tunnel vision. Of course, people have been using psychedelic substances without direct medical supervision for what, maybe even thousands of years. I sure. don't think that there's any, you know, it's not something that can't be done without two therapists there. On the other hand, I think that, you know, the experience and what you get out of it and what your goal is and what you want to achieve is different when you have two therapists versus maybe one therapist versus maybe some technology monitoring versus a person, you know, with a non-clinician exploring on their own, they're all, you know, they can be done safely and legitimately in all those different models, most likely, but you're going to get a different experience. And I would love to see, I think, you know, there is, there, I mean, I'm trained as a scientist and I try to do research and measure things objectively, but it's hard not to feel like there are a lot of things going on in psychedelic therapy that just are not captured by like our sensors and our mm. measurements. And there's an energy in the room that is there that, you know, as a guide, you, you can feel. And I feel like if you have two people who are there putting their mind and their spirit in you know, the most stable, healthy, meditative, mindful state that it can't but help the patient, you know, during those rough patches when something upsetting or frightening is happening to, you know, reassure them so that they can push through and, yeah. and go deep. You know, it's a good point. It's, it's such a benefit to have a helping hand and on the other hand, sometimes it's one of those uh, particle wave function collapses where does observation change the outcome? You know, when in doubt, especially for some people, it's just good to have a helping hand nearby, especially a well-trained professional or two. And I appreciate your open-minded approach towards 
Um, this monitoring solution we're, we're looking at, we're building something right now. Where we said, is there a way to have a remote trip option where you've got maybe a two or three doctors and a couple techs that are monitoring 50, 100 people over a Zoom or a, or a video conference all at once with biosensors yeah. and some other AI that we've built. So a lot of fun potential. I'm curious, though, to get a peek behind the curtain. How did you guys come to choose psilocybin? Of all the options, LSD, ibogaine, MDMA, yeah. why psilocybin first? Well, that's an easy one. Um, the uh, um, the I mean, the practical aspect was that um, myself and Dr. Kelly, my boss, were lucky enough to develop a relationship and and a friendship with the folks that um, make up the USONA Institute which is one of the companies that's developing psilocybin for um, major depression and other indications. And, you know, um, USONA is um, very unique. USONA and MAPS are, MAPS is working on MDMA for PTSD, among other things. They both come directly out of the psychedelic world. Um, they're, they, you know, obviously Rick Doblin has been a pioneer, um, the founder of MAPS. And um, they're both established as not-for-profit, essentially not-for-profit pharmaceutical companies. And they have a strong ethic about how they want to run the company that I think fits well with the psychedelic world. And I have no, cons you know, it's, look, businesses exist for good reasons and profits are, you know, people being profiting from their, their intelligence and their effort is perfectly fine by me. Um, there are a lot of companies that are moving forward that are for profit and I'm sure they can do good work as well. But the people at USONA are just pretty special and um, really fun to do stuff with. And they were willing to provide us psilocybin free of charge for the alcohol study. Um, so that made it pretty easy. Really? And then psilocybin is, you know, it's been around for, it's, it's a little easier um, uh, there's hundreds and hundreds of years of safety data from people eating mushrooms. It's a well, well suited for therapy. It's, you know, um, got a very predictable time course. Seven hours is long, but it's not, it's not so long that, you know, um, you can't do it. So and it's not think, 10, 12 hours like yeah. LSD or mescaline. Yeah, and, and also, you know, I think another thing that's gonna become a big topic is um, the, so we're taking these people to be, and most of the studies, they have these requirements for a variety of reasons, scientifically and safety-wise. And the FDA often insists that when you're doing this study for people with alcoholism who are we're gonna treat with psilocybin, if you've used psychedelics in the past year, um, or you've, you know, extensively used psychedelics, they often won't let you in studies because they want it to be a, you know, a generalizable, a, a clean, safe, yeah, exactly. Right. 
So you're taking people, many of these people, it's the first or one of the first times that they've experienced something like this. Um, you know, I think psilocybin is a good choice for people who are starting out. Um, and, you know, by the way, you mentioned the FDA yeah. and this, this psilocybin discussion. Let's just pretend, wave a magic wand for a second. Imagine you are the drug czar in some hypothetical world. And you get carte blanche control over the DEA and FDA as they build and change potentially policy towards psychedelics. What would be the first couple of things you would do? Well, thankfully, I hope to never have that job because that's definitely not the type of pressure that that you know I would want to have to to do. God bless the people that that work there, and and I can tell you, it's the FDA are really smart scientists and they're, you know, you can, if you can prove something to them, show them good science, they're open to anything. And the DEA, the, the, the people that I've interacted with and worked with at the DEA to get our research going were, were really professional and very, you know, they're, they're not judgmental. They just want to make sure that, you know, you are following the regulations um, so I found them to be very cooperative. But to answer your question, you know, um, the path to so psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, these are schedule one drugs, illegal narcotics. Schedule one means no viable, um, legitimate medical use. So the pathway to getting that changed is to get FDA approval for an indication. So if psilocybin gets FDA approved, um, uh, for depression, the DEA has to reschedule psilocybin. It can't be Schedule One anymore. It has a legitimate use that's been shown to the FDA. What they schedule it at is going to be a big question. Do they still put a bunch of restrictions on it? You know, CBD, they originally, once CBD got approved for epilepsy, they were going to make it like from Schedule One to Schedule Four. And then they just decided to drop it and say it's not a controlled substance. I doubt that'll happen with psilocybin because, I mean, CBD, psilocybin is quite different from CBD. It's a yeah, I mean, psilocybin is one of the strongest LSD and DMT are some of the strongest psychoactive drugs available. Now, a lot of times that that power is for good. Um, but I mean, CBD is just like. You're, they're not in the same class, obviously, but right. the point is that for me, you know, when I started out in addiction, working with people who were shooting up heroin in New York City and um, HIV and hepatitis was going crazy. People were getting HIV from sharing needles and, um, you know, people said, oh, you should quit using drugs, go to rehab. And they said, I'm not interested in that. And then, you know, people started to say, well, what are, what could we do to help them not get infected with HIV then? And the obvious thing is, you know, make the, it's safer for them to use drugs and make it easier for them to access, you know, ways to reduce the harm from them using drugs. So I've always felt like that, you know, having, and, you know, heroin is a dangerous drug. Should it be legal? I mean, that's like the, like you said, the particle versus wave. I mean, there are paradoxes in this world. And, you know, 
heroin is dangerous, but making it the current system doesn't work either. So having respect for the substance, having respect for people that, you know, people can use a substance in a, you know, meaningful and a thoughtful way, or they can just be like, you know, messing around with it and harming themselves, but recognizing that there's, you know, that there are safer ways to use substances. I want and that to rule for all, you know, yeah. for all drugs. It's gotta be thought of, it's gotta be approached with a very methodical avenue. Uh, so Keith, sorry to cut you off. We're getting a little low on time. We've got uh, time for one little last segment. I'm going to put you on the spot if you don't mind. So this is what we call the speed round. Okay. So three questions for you. The idea is it's like a PTI Tony Kornheiser lightning round, 10 second responses, if you can. So three questions to kind of get a little window into the Dr. Keith Heinzerling's soul. So are you up for this? Okay, first question is, you run around the street, you hop into a bar, you sit down on the bar stool, next to you is God. He says, hey, Keith, you get one question and I got to run. What's the one question you would ask God? Why are we here? It's good. Okay, next question. Time travel's possible. You get to go back and give Keith from 10 years ago some sort of advice or just talk to him. You get 10 seconds to say something. What would you say? Oh, geez. Um, keep it real. <laughs> okay. So, uh, you know, I can't hate that question, I, that answer. I like that. Next and last question, kind of similar to the, the last one. Imagine time travel is possible, just not yet. And all of a sudden, Keith Heinzerling from the future. 10 years in the future is zapped into today and he sees you. What do you think he might say to you in 10 seconds? Oh, read more books, Ah. more time in nature. Don't work so hard. Hopefully. (laughs) Keith, uh, I love those answers. It is a pleasure as usual. Thank you so much for coming on board. Is there anywhere you want people to follow you a social or a plug or Anything, any action item? Yeah, I don't, I'm not really that personally active on social media, but you know, the trip program, pacifictrip.org. And if people want to participate in the research studies or need help with drug or alcohol problems, they can Google me and Google the trip program and shoot us an email. And I, I will try to see if we could help them out or direct them. He is the director of the trip program at Pacific Neuroscience Institute. Go find him at PNI or, uh, as he mentioned, we'll put some of his links into this uh, uh, the podcast and then the video here in the YouTube. Keith, thank you so much for joining. It was a pleasure. My pleasure, Ray. Talk to you soon, man.